0: But our sufficiency is of God, who has qualified us to be ministers of the New Covenant. Let me, uh, let me show you something interesting. Uh, this is a page out of the uh, Desert Sun, which is the uh, Palm Springs, California, newspaper. And uh, this fellow right up here is Bill Edlin. Uh, Bill is syndicated now and appears in a number of Gannett newspapers. And this ugly, bewhiskered fellow right underneath him is yours truly. And uh, I'll tell you how this happened. uh, There are some Christians down in the Palm Springs area that began to read Bill's column and uh, ask if they could have an alternative voice. And so the editor of the uh, newspaper in Palm Springs, who is the wife of the Jewish rabbi in Palm Springs, uh, called the statesman. And they said, well, uh, the way we appease the Christians up here is through this fellow roper. (laughs) And so they asked me to write for the Desert Sun. And last Monday, Bill called me. Uh, Actually, Bill and I have gotten to be pretty good friends, despite some of our uh, heated exchanges. Bill called me and he said, I happen to appear in the Santa Rosa, California newspaper. Would you like to appear in that newspaper? (laughs) So Bill has become my PR man. (laughs) I just thought you'd find that interesting. Would you turn with me to Hebrews 7? Hebrews chapter 7. As some of you know who know me well, I'm an Agatha Christie freak. I think I've read everything that uh, Ms. Christie has, uh, has written. And uh, one of the things that I have have learned as a result of reading her, her mystery novels is that you cannot overlook any character. Very often the most insignificant, seemingly obvious people turn out to be some of the most important characters in the entire story. And it's also true of the Old Testament. If I were to ask you to name the most significant person in the Old Testament, you probably would say Moses or Abraham or David or, or Isaiah or one of the other better-known uh, characters in that part of our Bible. But actually, the most significant character in the Old Testament is probably a man by the name of Melchizedek, who most of you may not uh, be aware of at all. Melchizedek is important because he is a facsimile of Jesus. He's the only person of whom that's said, as far as I can recall. If you want to see what Jesus is like, then you have to look at Melchizedek. And if if you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand Melchizedek. Now, uh, let's go back a bit into Hebrews, because we've gotten off of the main track. Actually, our author himself took us away from his main line of thought in chapter chapter 6. As you know, the concern of the book of uh, Hebrews, the theme is the greatness of Jesus. He's better than angels. He has a higher position. He has a better name. He is the Son. They are merely servants. He's better than Moses, Israel's great lawgiver. He not only is a greater lawgiver; he is a greater leader than Moses. And then in chap- chapter two, verse uh, seventeen, he introduces to the idea uh, introduces us to the idea that Jesus is a better high priest. He had to be made like his brothers; like to be ma- he had to be made like us in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and and faithful high priest in service to God. He introduces the idea in chapter 2 and he begins to elaborate on that idea in verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And he establishes for us the prerequisites of a high priest and then the perfection of of Jesus in verses 5 through 10 he fulfilled in every respect the requirements of a of a priest. And in verse 6 the author says he says in another place you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now you have to understand why he's concerned about establishing that Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek it's because any Jew hearing that Jesus was a priest would immediately question his credentials. Because according to law, the priest came through the tribe of Levi, and Jesus came through the tribe of Judah. He was qualified to be a king, he was a son of David, but he was not a son of Levi, and so he couldn't be a priest. Therefore, it was necessary for a new order of priests to be established. The closest analogy I can think is to our own constitution. According to our constitution, no foreigner, no one not born in the United States can become president of the United States if we would elect a president who is not a citizen of the United States. We have to change our whole constitution. Now, this is what would concern the readers of this book. If Jesus is a priest, then something radical has to happen to Israel's constitution, the law. It all has to be be changed. It has to be a new order of priests established. And that's what concerns him in chapter 7. Now, he has introduced the idea that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek in verse in chapter 5, verses 6, and then in verse 10, and in verse 11, he says, I'd like to tell you more about this, but you're not, you're not ready for it. And he digresses a bit to talk about their hardness of heart and their sluggishness and the fact that they're slow learners. And then he comes back to his original theme in chapter 7, the one of whom he wanted to speak earlier, this Melchizedek in chapter 7. Now let's read verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, that's Salem, Israel, not Salem, Oregon, and priest of God Most High. It's the word El Elyon in Hebrew. This is the Greek equivalent of that word that we just sang a moment ago. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and, and Abraham gave him a tenth, a tithe of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, even though their brothers were descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, even though he was a priest. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor, that is, in seed form. Seminally, Levi was in the body of of Abraham. Now, for any Jew reading this story, it would make a great deal of sense, although they would puzzle over the application that that the writer makes. But uh, they would know about Melchizedek. Now, for most of us, Melchizedek is unknown. Uh, He belongs in the part of our Bible that's the clean part of our Bible, the part that we don't read too much. So we need to go back and see something of the background of this this, uh, application that he makes. Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Now, there are only three verses in the Old Testament concerning Melchizedek. It's found in this chapter. The story is found in this chapter. The setting is uh, a conflict between certain kings in the Middle East, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and five kings who were the kings of city-states in the region around Sodom and Gomorrah. At the time this was written, was, at the time this event took place, which was about 2000 BC, uh, the area which we now call the Dead Sea was a flat, fertile plain, an alluvial plain through which the River Jordan flowed, and it was called the Circle of the Jordan. And there were a number of great cities there: Sodom and Gomorrah, we know best; Admah, Zeboim, and others that today are underwater, but at that time they were simply a part of this plain, or located on this plain. They were subservient to certain kings in Mesopotamia. They rebelled after 12 years of servitude. The kings over in Mesopotamia decided they had to put an end to this rebellion, so they went to war with the five kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their names are given to us here in chapter 14. Amraphel, verse 1 of chapter 14, might even be Hamuravi of law-giving fame. Uh, scholars are unsure because the timing may be off, but there's a very good chance that he is the one who's known to us from history as, as Hammurabi. Ariok, king of, of Elasser, was the king of Larsa. He's known from some of the ancient documents, very powerful king, king of a city-state that was, that was known as Larsa, which was one of the largest city-states in Babylon at the time. Keterleomer, king of Elam. Elam is uh, Assyria. Uh, title, King of Goim, is known in the monuments as a man by the name of Tutalia, who was a Hittite king, great, powerful Hittite king who ruled over a city located in what is modern day Turkey. I tell you that so you know these were no small potatoes. These were powerful, mighty kings. And they came against the kings of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the story of that conflict is given in chapter 14. The, the only thing we need to know is that they carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, in his possessions since he was living in Sodom. The war really is the small change of the story. The important thing, the crux of the story is Abraham's reaction to this uh, conflict and what he did in terms of his nephew, Lot. Because when word came to him that Lot was a prisoner of war... He got together with some of his neighbors, and he took his own private army. They're described here in verse 14 as the 318 trained men who were in his household. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. In those days, uh, particularly in Canaan, because life was so violent, your life was always in jeopardy. There were raiders and marauders who would take your flocks and your herds and destroy your crops, and so most of the truly wealthy people at that time, and Abraham was one of them, had their own army. They, they hired mercenaries to protect him. These 318 were his retainers who, in his case, had been born within his, his own household. Uh, he went out to uh, do battle with these uh, kings. Now, I have to understand, here's Abraham with 318 trained mercenaries and a few neighbors going against four of the greatest kings in the ancient world. And what he did was to raid their camp at night. It appears that that night they were celebrating, and they were all in a drunken stupor. And at night, uh, you, you know, you have to think of his army sort of like a Delta Force. They, like, like the, the Israelis coming into Entebbe. They hit them hard at night. They were able to uh, panic this uh, great army, and they fled toward the north. And he was able to. Uh, rescue his nephew and the wives and children and, and, and send these armies into flight. Afterward, Abraham began to have second thoughts. I, I don't know if you've done this sort of thing, but occasionally you do something that's somewhat heroic, and then afterwards you start thinking, what on earth have I done? I think Abraham was scared witless Chapter 15 begins with this encouraging word from the Lord. Don't be afraid, Abraham. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Don't fear these kings. I'm going to protect you. Don't fear men. Don't, don't seek any reward from them. I'm, I'm going to take care of you. Something happened in between before Abraham could clearly hear that voice. I think Abraham was really frightened. It took him a couple of days to get down to the place that we today call Jerusalem. Damascus is about 80 miles to the north they had chased these uh, Mesopotamian armies at least that far and a couple of days later perhaps after a long forced march Abraham's making his way at the head of his entourage you just have to picture in your mind what this must have been like women and children they were having to take care of the, the small ones and they were battered some of them wounded and, and frightened and wondering when they were going to be attacked from the rear and tired, weary, bone-tired after this battle, and and Abraham and his little army is making its way down through the region that we call today the King's Valley or the Kidron Valley. If you ever go to Jerusalem and you walk over to the Mount of Olives, you'll pass through a little valley that's called the Valley of the Kidron or the Kidron. A little brook runs through that valley, and that's this... That's the valley that's called the Valley of Sheva, the King's Valley here. It looks a little bit like the terrain on the way up to Lucky Peak Dam. There are mountains on both sides. On the right, there's a fairly steep cliff, and the river, which is much smaller than the Boise River, flows at the bottom of, of the valley. And they were making their way down through this dusty, dry uh, uh, highway. And uh, a couple of things happened almost at the same time. Verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Keter-Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. That's the Kidron. king of Sodom we know was a man by the name of Bera. And he was part of, part of this decadent culture that characterized Sodom. Every type of kinky, unbelievably gross immorality took took place in uh, in that region. This man was a part of it all. And he met Abraham and made him an offer that would be very difficult to refuse. He said to Abraham, just give me the people and you keep all the goods. Here was a chance for Abraham to enrich himself. When you're down and out, an opportunity to gain some wealth always sounds very, very good. There's a strange kind of inducement at that time to give in, because money seems to be the thing that uh, will, will tide us over until things get better. We, we know that things aren't going well, but at least we have a little bit of money that we can enjoy. It's an enormous temptation at this point. But at the same time, Melchizedek, king of Salem, met him. Verse 18, then Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine, these simple necessities, sufficiencies for life. He was priest of God Most High, El Elyon, the highest God of all. And he blessed Abraham, saying, and then you have a little poem. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies Into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High. Three times that title is used, once or twice by Melchizedek and then by Abraham. I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I shall accept nothing belonging to you, not even a piece of string or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I have made Abram rich, I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten, and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, call and Mamre, let them have their share. They were unbelievers. He didn't want to impose this morality on them, but as for myself, he said, I, I don't, I don't want your money. I don't need your money. I've got God, and, and that's all I need. Now, here, here is a man who is a king priest over a Canaanite uh, an Amorite city. Here, here's a little oasis of spiritual life, real, authentic spiritual life in the midst of a spiritual desert. In the midst of polytheism, the grossest sort of polytheism and child sacrifice and all the awful things that were done in the names of the god of gods of, of the Middle East, here's a little island of righteousness and purity. A man who not only is the political leader of this city-state, but he's also the devotional leader. He comes down out of this little citadel and makes his way down to Abraham. He meets Abraham. Abraham doesn't have to climb up to the heights to meet him. He takes the initiative. He comes down and meets Abraham where he is. And Abraham falls on his knees in front of this man who lays his hands on his head and blesses him, enriches his life, reminds him of the truth that God is his sufficiency feeds him bread and wine, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he had. Now, the rabbis had a, had a terrible time with that, because to them, Abraham was the greatest man in the Middle East. He was He describes himself as the friend of God, and he's described by unbelievers as a prince with God. There was no one like Abraham, and yet this man fell on his knees in the dust in front of this seemingly pagan king-priest who acknowledges the same Lord that Abraham worships, who blesses him. And as the writer of Hebrews points out, Assuredly, the lesser is always blessed by the greater. And Abraham pays tithes to this priest who's not in the line of of Levi. Rabbis couldn't handle that. They said, This man is Shem. The son of Noah, has to be, because in their chronology, which which was wrong basically, but in their chronology, they believed that the life of Shem overlapped the life of Abraham. So this was uh, Noah's son, Shem, the one through whom the promised seed was to come. But it wasn't, it was Melchizedek, he was just a king. That was his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem. Who met Abraham right where he was and dispensed the sufficiencies of life, bread and wine, blessed him, enriched his life. The writer of Hebrews says he's a facsimile of Jesus. He's just like our Lord. And where did he get that idea? Just pull it out of the air? No, it came to him by revelation. Turn to the passage that George read earlier, Psalm 110. Let me call your attention to just a couple of lines in that psalm. This is a psalm of David. Not only does the title say so, a number of apostles refer back to the psalm and ascribe it to David. It's a psalm that's quoted, I think, more than any other psalm in the New Testament. It's mined repeatedly by the apostles in order to tell us more of the nature of Christ. The Lord says to my Lord, David said, this is an oracle. It's a prophecy. It's a revelation. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God did not say this to David. He said it to his Lord. Who is that? But well, Jesus, uh, once when he was engaged in a debate with the Pharisees, called their attention to this passage. He said, tell me, whose son is David? Or whose son is the Messiah? Excuse me. The rabbi said, David's son. Jesus said, well, if that's true, then why did David, speaking by the Holy Spirit... In other words, this is an inspired prophet. Why did David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, call him Lord, Master? You see, in this culture, to refer to your son as uh, as Lord would be out of character. You could refer to your father as Lord, but never your son, because the father was always greater than the Lord. You see what Jesus is saying? David looked down through history. He had been promised that his line would eventually consummate in the seed, the one who would come, who would sit on the throne of David forever. That's the promise in 2 Samuel 7. He believed it. And as he looked down through history, he saw his master. He saw the Messiah who was to come. And he calls him, Lord. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He could very well have said, David saw my day. And rejoiced. And David said, Yahweh, the Lord said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he goes on to explain in the verses that follow is that he's a king who will rule in the midst of his enemies. That oracle establishes Messiah's kingship. And now look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here again is an oath an oracle which is sealed by an oath we saw that last week the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind he's never going to reverse himself he's not going to rescind this decree it is fixed it is final he says to my Lord who is that? he's already established who that is that's the Christ the Messiah that's coming you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek the Jews couldn't figure this one out either Because it's very clear from this passage, and you see, that's why they stumbled over Jesus' question. They had no answer for it. It's very clear from this passage that one day when Messiah came, he would not only be a king, he would be a priest. How can that be? The kings came from the tribe of Judah. Well, this is one who would come from another order. Not from the line of Levi, but from an order of king-priests rooted in the Old Testament. Where? In the story of Melchizedek. Now, let's go back to Hebrews 7 and uh, observe how he draws out the implications of that story. This Melchizedek, the one of whom we've been speaking, was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. So he's a king, priest, like Melchizedek. Now that combination of offices was unknown in Israel. Given the fallenness of man, it's it's a very risky to put both political and spiritual power in the hands of any person. That's why the framers of our Constitution were wise to separate church and state. They never intended church and statesmen to be separated. But it's wise to separate church and state because in the hands of fallen and godly men and women, they will use their political power in order to achieve spiritual power or vice versa. So it didn't happen in Israel. As a matter of fact, the one king who tried it was struck down by leprosy, Isaiah. Intruded into the priestly office. He crossed the sacred barricade. He made his way into the inner court. He snatched up the censer and he came down with leprosy at that moment. It's the sort of thing that wasn't permitted. A king couldn't be a priest. A priest couldn't be a king. It just wasn't allowed. But here's one who's both a king and and a priest. Appointed so, we're told. He was given the authority, and he earned it. He earned his kingship by going through the cross. He gained his crown through suffering. He's qualified to be a priest because he understands. He became a human being, so he knows what it's like to struggle with weakness and frailty. And Hebrews makes much of the fact that he's just like one of us. That's why he can understand so well. So he not only was appointed, he earned it. He's both king and he's priest. I think the order is significant. He cannot be our priest. He cannot be our intercessor. He cannot be the one who leads us to God unless he is our king, unless we kneel at his feet and acknowledge his authority. Secondly, the writer tells us his name means king of righteousness. And then also, as king of Salem, he was king of of peace. The word Melchizedek is uh, composed of two words that mean king of righteousness. Melech, king, tzedek, which means righteousness. He was king of righteousness. He's the one who has the right to make us right. He's the only one that can make us righteous. He's also the king of peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the only one that can give peace. He's the only one that can give satisfaction. He's the only one that can set things, set us right with God and and with one another. And again, the order is significant. You cannot have peace until you have his righteousness. Years ago, I heard uh, dear old Dr. Henry Brandt talking about a counseling session that he was involved in young man came in to talk to him, and he told him he had no sense of peace. He was restless and anxious. And, and Dr. Brandt said to him, well, I, I know what your problem is. You're wicked. And uh, the fellow said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, the Bible says there's no peace to the wicked. And uh, he says, that's your problem. You're wicked. Now, what we need to do is find out where you're wicked. And if we can solve that problem, then you'll have Peace. So they began to delve in this young man's life, and they found some things that had gone wrong. And he said, well, I've tried and tried to make those changes. I can't. And Dr. Brand said, that's exactly my point. You you can't make yourself righteous. Only God can make you righteous. You see, long before Jesus came, Isaiah predicted that when he came through the knowledge of him, he would make many righteous. That's what justification is. It's a declaration of righteousness based upon his sacrifice. And when he becomes the king of righteousness, when he grants his righteousness to us, when he gives it as his right and his legacy, then we have peace. We have peace with God and peace in our own hearts. It's another thing that... um, He tells us he is without beginning and he's without end. He has an eternal tenure. Look at verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Some people have thought, on the basis of that verse, that Melchizedek was a theophany. That is, he was an appearance of God. He was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He was the angel of Jehovah or something of that sort. But for myself, I don't think so. The word that's used here to describe him as being like the Son of God suggests more that this is an analogy than anything else. He was a historical king, a real live, honest to goodness, king of, king of Salem. But uh, as far as the report is concerned, as far as the literature is concerned, he had no beginning. There's no reference to his mother or father, and that was very important in terms of both kingship and priestly functions. You had to have a a genealogy that established your right to rule or your right to be a priest. He didn't have a mother or father according to the record. The writer of Hebrews is arguing from silence. It's more significant to him what's not said than what is said. Nothing is said about his mother and father. So it's as though he's saying, let's pretend he didn't have one. Let's pretend he didn't have any beginning. Secondly, nothing's said about his death. He lived forever. Let's pretend that he lived forever. And in that sense, he is just like our Lord Jesus. He had no beginning and no end. There was no beginning to his love for you. No beginning to his compassion. He's always loved you. He's always wanted you. He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. As far as you can go back into eternity, you'll discover that He has a great, big, loving heart for you. And secondly, there's there's no end to His life. He goes on forever. The problem with the priests, as the author is going to go on and say, is that they just kept dying off. You find a priest that understood you, a priest that was a priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. In other words, He not only... Doesn't die. He can't die. He can't be destroyed. It's his nature to go on forever. Verse 17, you're a priest forever. Verse 21, you're a priest forever. Verse 23, Jesus lives forever. He is a permanent priesthood. Verse 25, he always lives to intercede for us. Verse 28, he has been appointed a son who's been made perfect forever. Priests die. Friends move out of town. Mothers and fathers die. You can't get an appointment with your counselor. Somebody hangs up on you that you want to talk to, or you call dead in desperate need, and they, you know, you're on an answering machine, or nobody picks up the phone. That's a problem with uh, earthly priests and gurus and pastors and friends and, and counselors. They're just not available. But he's always available. There's never a time when he's not on duty. There's never a time when you can't get his ear. Any time you call him, he's always there. He's not going to put you on hold. He's always there. He's a priest that goes on forever. And then there's a fourth characteristic of this of this man. It's what I call the principle of reciprocity. There's a recipro- reciprocal relationship. There was a a giving on the part of both parties. Abraham gave tithes. Melchizedek gave bread and wine. Now, the tithe in Israel was 10% of your possessions, and that tithe was exacted over and over again on a number of different items, produce and herds and flocks and various other articles that you possessed. It never was God's intention that that be carried on. We, we don't tithe anymore in the New Testament. We don't give a tenth. We don't even talk about tithing in this church because it makes people tenth. <clears throat> <laughs> now you see the tithe was a picture, it was a symbol of giving everything, everything. We don't just give ten percent, we give everything. He all we are belongs to Him. It, it, that was the symbol in the Old Testament as well. They gave a tenth as sort of a down payment on the rest of their lives, their person. And uh, the New Testament picks up that notion and elaborates on it. We we give uh, we give praise. We give all of our praise. We give our persons, as Paul puts it. We present our bodies a living sacrifice to him. We give ourselves. So when you pass the offering plate, jump in. That's the point. We, we, we give all. So in a sense, Abraham gave everything to Melchizedek. He got down on his knees in front of this, this wonderful old saintly man, and he offered up himself, and Melchizedek gave him bread and wine. What a wonderful picture of the resources of Christ that are available to us. That figure is used over and over again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe all the good things, the resources of life that God wants to provide for us. So what this passage tells us in terms of Jesus is that we give all of ourselves to him and he gives all of himself to us. The measure you give is the measure you get. The extent to which you give yourself to him is the extent, the extent to which you have our Lord Jesus. The more you give, the more you get. You cannot out him. If you want all of our Lord, all you have to do is get down on your knees before him and offer up your... Your life, a living sacrifice, your praise, your pocketbook, your person, your possessions, your children, your marriage, your business, everything that, that's at your disposal is offered up. It's a sacrifice. And he gives you bread and wine. Now I want you to imagine. We've got just a moment or two. I want you to imagine something. Imagining is a good thing. I'm not a new ager. But God has given us an image-making function in our mind. That's what our imagination is. I want you to picture this scene. I've been to Israel. I've been to that location several different times. I myself have stood at the bottom of that valley and just tried to imagine the scene. So it's a little easier for me, but if you want to picture the road up to, up to the uh, reservoir or some other place, just picture in your mind this, this location. And you're on your way home. You're beat. You're sunk. You've had it. You're wounded. You're hurt. You're tired. You're scared. You're weary with life. And who should show up but the king of Sodom offering some alternative to God? Looks awfully good. Looks awfully good. But there, standing right by the king of Sodom, is our Melchizedek, our Lord Jesus. And what he wants from us is for us to get down on our hands and knees and offer up our lives to him. And he promises to give us bread and wine, everything we need for life. We're coming home from work and it's uh, been a hard day. I was reading uh, in Time Magazine just this last week about the beleaguered chairman of Exxon, Lawrence Rawls. Because he comes home every day now, and he walks in the door, and one of his kids says, Dad, you sure look tired. He says, yeah, it's been an awful day at the office. Maybe that's the way you feel, or maybe there's no one at home. Maybe you're walking into an empty house where there's no one to care for you. You're all by yourself. Or you're walking into a house full of kids. And you, you would like for somebody to take care of you. You'd like for the king of Sodom to show up and uh, to provide for your needs, to enrich you in some way. And, and, and yet you know you have to go in there and serve. Well, just picture yourself, if you will, making your way down that dry, dusty valley. And in the middle of that, of that barrenness, there is an oasis of life. And, and our Melchizedek makes his way down the side of the hill. He comes to meet you. You don't have to climb up there and get him. He takes the initiative. And in your mind, just imagine yourself getting on your knees and offering up your life to him, and he gives you bread and wine, just what you need, so you can go on and serve. Or maybe you're a mother, you know, and the end of the day, you're standing ankle-deep in an O.J. and in cracker crumbs, and uh, you'd like to stomp one of the children into the carpet, and uh, you've just about had it. Just go off and find some quiet place in the house and... And in your mind, get down on your knees or just get down on your knees beside your bed or chair and imagine that a, that your Melchizedek is there and just offer up your life to him and, and he gives you bread and wine. He's always available. You, know, you don't have to hunt him up. He comes looking for you. Never put you on hold. He's always available. Some of you may be very hollow inside, very much unsatisfied with life, looking for something more. and You don't know where to turn. You've tried everything, and nothing seems to work. I want to tell you something the prophet Isaiah said. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsts, he says, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come by wine and bread. Come by wine and bread without money and without price, because... There's no good reason why you should try to satisfy yourself with something that's, that's not bread. But if you come to me, I'll satisfy your soul with fatness. I don't know about you, but there's something really moving about that picture. I've thought of it repeatedly this last week as I've been meditating on this passage, and I've just tried to th- think what it would mean to have our Melchizedek available to us 24 hours a day. I just want you to understand that he is available. He's on on call at any time. He's a king priest. He's king of righteousness. He's king of peace. He's a priest who goes on forever. He's always available, always making intercession for us. And when we offer ourselves up to him, he gives us bread and wine. Let's pray. What a wonderful picture, Lord, of your availability and the access that we have to you, have to you and the wonderful way in which you minister to our needs. There's so many temptations around to go the way of Sodom and to accept some other, some alternative plan to the bread and wine that you want to give to us. We just thank you that you're available, standing there, ready to break your bread, the bread of life, and and share the sweet wine of your spirit, all the things that we need to be satisfied and to have sufficiency for this life. Lord, help us not to forget this picture. Put it into our minds in such a way that we can never forget it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.